You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is just about time for searching scripture for the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. We'll get to that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today for Searching Scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness, the Reverend Carl Roth. He's pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, and writer of this column for this whole year. Pastor Roth, welcome back to The Coffee Hour. Delighted to be with you We again. are continuing our Searching Scripture in First Peter this year. Before we dig into today's text in First Peter chapter 1, 13 through 21, any introduction or any notes before we actually get into the scripture text today? Well, the Lutheran Witness this year is focusing on the topic of community. And Peter, Second Peter, or I'm sorry, First Peter is a wonderful example of a document that is intended to build up community. And today we're going to really focus in on how the Lord has called us to be a holy community. And we'll, we'll define that term as we get through the text. All right. Would you like to read the whole text for our study today first before we get into the questions? You bet. First Peter 1, 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All right. Question one, is the hope referred to in 1 Peter 1 verse 13 oriented toward this life or the one to come? See 1 Corinthians 15 verses 19 through 21. According to Romans 15 verse 4 and 13, how is our Christian hope nourished and strengthened? All right. So we can discuss the term hope. First, hope is really in the Bible expectation or anticipation, not uncertainty. It's something that we're waiting for. And I can remember growing up on the the ranch back in in Texas when I was a kid. When we ever, whenever we had company, we didn't get a lot of visitors, and so I was always excited when people were coming. And we lived down about a half mile lane, and I'd sit on the porch and look out the window, just waiting for the first sign of the car to come around the bend and come up the road. And so. This is one of the reasons why Peter tells us to be sober-minded as we are hoping, because sober-mindedness is something that you, it means you're intent upon something, you're focused upon something. And so we are to be looking forward to the coming of our Lord with that expectation in the same way that I was thinking about the company coming up the road and looking forward to dinner and things like that. So we also then as Christians are to have this expectation and watchfulness, sober-mindedness, as we're hoping. Now, it's pretty clear from the text that this hope is not oriented towards things in this life. As he says, we're to look forward to the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's primarily oriented towards the future, the the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't want to exclude our 
sober-mindedness and, and expectation of Jesus coming to us regularly through his word and sacraments. But this is oriented towards the future. It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. This is why in the creeds we say, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. When we say we look for it, we're really hoping for it, expecting it, waiting for it. Now, Peter will also talk about pagans and the feudal ways inherited from forefathers. And a lot of people today, even Christians can slip into hoping in this life, putting their expectations in their experiences here, the gifts they receive here. But actually that's associated with wickedness in the psalm. Psalm 17 speaks of the wicked whose portion is in this life. Their hope and their expectation is for what they experience here. Ours is oriented towards the future. Now, the way that we avoid becoming earthly-minded, becoming worldly, is by constantly hearing the scriptures. And that's what Paul says in Romans 15. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. Again, that forward-looking expectation, and that's going to come from the scriptures. And then he says in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So as the word continues to come into our hearts, it's going to fill us with joy and peace and strengthen our faith so that we can have a hope not in this life, but in the life of the world to come. Question two, Peter previously introduced family language by saying that believers have been born again to an inheritance. He again picks up this theme by calling Christians obedient children who call on, the, on God the Father. Compare 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17 with the expl- explanation of the first petition of the Lord's Prayer in the small catechism. Why is hallowing God's name the first thing we pray for when we call on God as Father? All right, so in in the just reviewing a little bit in First Peter one fourteen to seventeen, Peter describes us as uh, obedient children, and he says, "You shall be holy, for I am holy," and that is uh, straight out of Leviticus, uh, something that God had revealed to His people of old, uh, the Israelites. And one interesting thing about that passage is that it can be heard as as believers, we can receive it not just as a command. You need to be holier but also as a promise. The Lord says, I'm holy, you will be holy. He is the one who makes us holy. God's name, as we learn in the small catechism explanation of the first petition, is holy in itself. So we don't make God's name holy, but we pray that it may be kept holy among us. And Luther says, how is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we, as the children of God, also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this, Heavenly Father. I almost think Luther might have had First Peter in mind when he was, was writing out the explanation of this petition. This should be our first and foremost priority every day. That's why we pray it first in the Lord's Prayer. May God's holy name that he's put upon us in baptism be kept holy in our lives. Really, we're praying that we might live out our baptism each day, putting to death our old Adam and rising up to newness of life. And 
there is an emphasis here on conduct, on obedience. And this is something that maybe gets neglected sometimes. We focus exclusively on the gifts of God and the forgiveness of sins, and then perhaps neglect a little bit the importance of holiness in our vocations. Uh, but this is a strong emphasis in in First Peter that we're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, our the feudal ways that we inherited from our ancestors, but rather are to be conformed to Christ, who is the Holy One of God, who makes us holy by his forgiveness, but then also leads us into holy works each day of our lives. All right, question three. Motivational speakers often try to change the attitudes and behavior of their audiences by appealing to the strength of the human will. When Peter seeks to motivate Christians to holy living, where does he point them? See 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21. Also compare these verses with the explanation of the second article of the Creed in the Small Catechism. All right. So do you want your pastor to be a motivational speaker? I'm not so <laughs> sure. You know, when when Lutheran pastors try that bit, it doesn't it doesn't work out very well. We need to stick with what's been given to us. But mot- motivation in, in the human sphere does tend to revolve around appealing to the will and, and also motivating that will by either pride or by fear. And this can have some usefulness for achieving certain goals in day-to-day life, right? I might be motivated to improve my health by vanity or else by avoid the desire to avoid future disease. That can be a strong motivator. And and those things can work in the short run, especially. And, and there is a place for them in disciplining our sinful flesh. But when it comes to our new man, our spirit created in us by holy baptism, this is always going to be motivated by its connection to Christ. And St. Peter uses almost creedal language here in the in his his text here by focusing on what Christ has done in the second article of the creed. We've been redeemed or ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And you can certainly hear how, how Luther picks up on that in, in the small catechism when he says, Jesus Christ has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. So our focus on Jesus and what he has done for us is really going to motivate us. And that's why Luther continues in his explanation to say that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. Because the outcome of our focus on Christ is going to be a renewal of our lives, um, a, a, a true change, so that we're going to desire to be holy as he is holy and live under him. You know, the, the Beatles taught us that money can't buy me love. And we all know that money can't buy us happiness. And so it's not with silver or gold that God redeems us, but it's with the precious blood of Christ. In this text, we also pick up on some Old Testament themes when it speaks of the lamb without blemish or spot. This is uh, Passover language. And the great event of redemption in the Old Testament was the, the redemption of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And that was done with the blood of a lamb. And that's what protected them when the angel of death passed over. And so likewise, we're protected from the wrath of God by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he redeems us out of slavery to sin into a new life in him, which leads to everlasting life. We are searching scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. 
I'm Sarah Goldfest. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Our guest is the Reverend Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. We're taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21 today. Pastor, we're going on to question number four, and this one has some nice Texas cultural references, <laughs> which I appreciate. So in Texas, it's common to address a group as y'all in order to distinguish between the second person, plural you, and the singular you. The King James Version regularly makes this distinction by using <clears throat> makes this distinction by using ye, you, your as plural, and the, thou, or thine as singular. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, every you and your is plural. Does this insight alter the way you receive the text? Why or why not? All right. Well, I, I think this does actually change the way that we, that we look at this text and so many other in Scripture. And it's, you know, comparing different Bible versions, it's always a good idea. And if you want a second Bible translation to compare to, the King James is really great because they were absolutely rigorous in maintaining this distinction when it comes to second person singular and plural. And so so I, I encourage you to, to have that King James there handy. And when, um, when you're looking at a passage, check the King James on it. Um, you know, I, I could instead, I guess, say... Uh, uh, read the text in Texan and say, therefore, preparing y'all's minds for action and being sober minded, set y'all's hope fully on the grace uh, to be revealed. But that's that would be a <laughs> bit jarring, wouldn't it? Um, but but in our own minds, we should hear these texts that way, whether it's you guys or, you know, you or whatever the second person plural is in your region. Um, but this is a reminder, just as we we talked about in the last question, when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We don't say my father in heaven. We say our father who art in heaven. We are the community of God in Christ. We're a holy community under the holy name of Jesus. And the, uh, the Lord does sometimes address us in the singular and, and all, uh, other times in plural. Um, I, I think one good example of this is in first P first Corinthians chapter six, where St. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there he does focus in on the individual, on, on the individual's body. But then he continues, or do you, y'all, not know that y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within y'all, whom you have from God? Y'all are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in y'all's body. It's very interesting 
to hear it a little bit differently. I tend to think about my individual body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's absolutely right. I've been uniquely and individually made part of the body of Christ, um, united with Christ. But I also do need to think about the fact that I am part of a community and we are the body of Christ. And that's going to affect the way we think about our relationship with one another. You know, when we go to the Lord's Supper, each of us individually receives the body of our Lord Jesus Christ along with his precious blood. But as I look to my neighbor, I realize they're receiving that body as well. And that's incorporating us together. And that really changes the way we look at one another and how the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation towards one another is is crucial in the Christian life. Yeah, I really like that distinction and reading it with y'all. I mean, I chuckle, but it does it does make a difference when you're reading that text and thinking through individual versus community. So that's I like that. Yeah, I I, I definitely will will break out the y'all several times in in the course of the church year. I, I don't do it too often, but I've got to talk to the people down here in Texas. In words, is there a translation specifically for Texans? <laughs> Is there a Bible translation for Texans? Uh, maybe that will be my <laughs> life's work, is I'm just going to, starting with the New Testament, retranslate it into Texas. That would be amazing. Okay. Definitely a market for that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 So when Jesus talks about there's, you know, like there's only one way or the other, I'll, I'll translate that into in the middle of the road, there's only dead armadillos and yellow stripes. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, um, there's no way of going down the middle. You, you've got to be, pick one side <laughs> or the other. So just wait for that. That'll be published in 2025. It. Fabulous. All right. Our final question, question five. In First Peter 1, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father is mentioned in reference to the election of believers. In 1, verse 20, we learn that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Read the introduction to Peter's sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24. How does Peter uphold both human responsibility for sin as well as divine providence? According to 1 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21, what is the goal of God's plan for the world? All right. So in Acts 2, Peter is is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Okay, so in human philosophy, one of the the sort of classic conundrums is, you know, how do you kind of like think through issues like foreknowledge and predestination? And no one's ever going to come to a satisfactory conclusion from the perspective of human reason. These things actually are mysteries. But the truth is that God can know things in advance without causing them. And so when we speak of the foreknowledge of God, we can we can actually say that that doesn't make him the cause of evil. So just looking at the Example of Judas is a good one. Just because uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and that that actually was in fulfillment of Scripture doesn't mean that God caused Judas to do that evil thing. So also in this text, Peter says it was lawless men that crucified and killed Jesus, but at the same time, this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Um, So uh, while there are mysteries involved here that we're just going to have to wait 
until we get to heaven to kind of like figure out how it all works together philosophically, if in fact God ever reveals those things to us, um, we can nonetheless rejoice in the fact that God had a plan. And that plan involved giving up his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to pay for all of our sins, him rising on Easter to win the hope of everlasting life for us, and also that God uses the evil of human beings to bring about good purposes. We see that in the Joseph story where Joseph tells his brothers who were so malicious to him, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the example above all of this is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In First Peter, he, the, the evangel, or I should say the apostle very clearly says that God had a plan all along before the foundation of the world that has been now made clear to all of us in the last times for our sake. There's the Lutheran for you. The gospel is for you. God had a plan from the very beginning before the foundation of the world for each one of you. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, he actually has chosen us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And what does that lead to? It leads to us being, as Peter says, believers in God. Through Christ, we're believers in God, not through our own reason and strength, not by our own decision, but through Christ, we're believers in God. And then that leads to so that your faith and your hope are in God. So that ties it back into that first question. Our hope and expectation is not in this life, but our hope is in God. Pastor, as we we look over the text that we've covered today, any summary or or final thoughts? Yes. So one thing that we didn't really pick up on was in First Peter one fourteen, he talks about how the people in that, that are receiving his epistle had originally been under the passions of their former ignorance and the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Now, this can take different forms. And I, I would just highlight that among the Gentiles who had become Christians, the futility of their former ways was mostly manifested in licentiousness and paganism. Licentiousness being antinomianism, not worried about law and, and about good behavior, but rather just living for today, living for the self. And then also idolatry. Paganism is always about fundamentally trying to get the gods on your side through sacrifice and by placating them. And so those were the, the feudal ways inherited from, for the Gentile believers. And, and those are things that have now been, uh, washed away by the redemption of Christ and by the blood of Christ. Now, when Peter is talking to Jews who had become Christians, he's saying that, that their feudal ways that they had inherited probably wasn't licentiousness and definitely wasn't paganism, but very likely was self-righteousness. So for the Jews who had the word of God, the temptation for them was always to think, oh, I've got to use these laws to get right with God. Notice how both with the pagans and the Jews, there was self-justification involved, either through idolatry and sacrifice or through following the law. But Peter very wonderfully proclaims both law and gospel as the unchanging word of God for humanity so that we have redemption by the blood of Christ. And then he doesn't slip into antinomianism or licentiousness, but he urges us to be sober-minded, reverent, and obedient children. Our guest today, the Reverend Carl Roth, pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us searching scripture in the February issue of the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Roth, 
Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The Coffee Hour. It's a pleasure being with you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.